There are so many speculative ideas about it, but let's we pray that you may let us come to your word and let it speak to us about what this great event means. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I think that many people make God in their own image. right? They make God in an image of something which is pleasing to them. So I remember how many years ago, I met an Indian man who was a very, very pleasant man. Okay, this Indian man. And uh, he was educated. He was quite uh, a, a nice guy. And he became a Christian, <clears throat> came to church. But then we started studying the Old Testament. And then he stopped going to church. Because what he said was that, I cannot believe in an angry God. Right, that's what he said. I cannot believe in an angry God. Because I believe only in a God who is loving. But today, as we come to Genesis chapter 7, 8, we come to an angry God. And he is very, very angry because as we've seen in the last few weeks, if you see here, right? Last week, if you look up here in the passage, you see the screen up here? God had seen how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time and God was grieved, he was saddened, he was hurt that he had made man on the earth and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I've created from the face of the earth, men and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds of the air, for I'm grieved that I've made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So chapter 6, we found that God was angry. He was an angry God. And in first chapter 7 and 8, we see how angry he can get and what he's going to do with his anger. So we begin in chapter 7 about how God organizers for Noah to build the ark and then bring and fill the ark with seven pairs of every kind of clean animal, a male and its mate, and one pair of every kind of unclean animal, a male and its mate, and then seven pairs of birds, male and female, and various things. And he says, seven days from now, I will send rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights, and I'll wipe from the face of the earth every living creature that I've made. So God here is very specific. In seven days time, it will rain for 40 days and 40 nights. And what is God doing here? God is actually in the process of uncreation. Okay, so in Genesis chapter 1, there was creation. Now we are undoing everything that he did before. Because if you look up here on the slide, right? In the first day of creation, what happened? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, the deep water, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the water. So in the beginning, there was, the world was covered with water. Okay, there was nothing around the earth but water. Then, on the, on, uh, in verse 6, God said, let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it. And it was so. And God called the expanse sky. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And the Lord said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. 
and God called the dry land ground. Oh, sorry, God called the dry ground land. Okay, and the God gathered waters. He called the seas, and God saw that it was good. But here in chapter seven, we see this whole process of being reversed, right? Because in the beginning there was oceans and water everywhere, and then God separated it so there was land and water. But now we see that we go back to the beginning and there's water all over the world once again. And God begins this process of uncreation by sending rain from the sky and water from the springs below. So I think here, if you, if you look at verse 17 onwards, it's a very, very, uh, I guess, very sad picture, right? Because look at what it says. Just as God had promised, for 40 days the flood kept coming on the earth, and as the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. The waters rose and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of water. They rose greatly on the earth, and all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. The waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 15 cubits. Every living thing that moved on the land perished. Birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swarm over the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. People and animals and the creatures that move along the ground, the birds were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. And the waters flooded the earth for 150 days. So here we see in this very long passage, really, a picture of emptiness, desolation. Okay? Now, it's, it's a bit like uh, this picture, right? Okay, yeah, next slide. So, it's, imagine the whole earth is just covered with water. And uh, all the people that we knew before, Lamech, the big cities, they're all gone. Everybody's gone, right? It's a bit like, you know, you want to watch one of those, um, you know, those horror movies, right? And then it's always like, you know, hello, hello. Do you copy anybody there? Right? I can't see anybody. Right? It's that sort of thing. It's like by, by repetition, it keeps talking about how the water kept rising and rising and rising until even the highest mountains were covered with water. And not only that, uh, if you actually read the original language, there is a sense in which it's talking about how the water prevailed over life. Okay, so if you look at the, this verse here, right? In uh, chapter 17, verse 11, it says, As long as Moses held up his hand, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. So in the same way, when actually we read this passage, it talks about the same thing. Right? It talks about how, actually, when the water was rising, right, the water prevailed and increased greatly, right? Upon the earth, and the, and the ark floated on the surface of the water, and the water prevailed more and more. The water won, was like winning more and more, right? So that all the high mountains were covered, and the water prevailed, or was like winning, by more than 15 cubits higher, and the mountains were covered, and the water prevailed upon the earth for 150 days. It's almost like saying the water is like prevailing, or winning, or conquering over life, 
on earth. That's the story or the imagery that is meant to be given. The water kept rising and rising and rising. As it rose, it defeated and it conquered and it prevailed over every living thing found on earth. Now, the lesson that we learn here as we read from chapter 6 is that when God was angry with sin, as we read just in chapter 6, right? It's not like your anger and my anger. You know, I don't know about you. Lah. You know, sometimes we get angry and, and we have a fight with someone, right? But then afterwards, when we calm down a bit, we realize that actually maybe we reacted too harshly. Lah, right? Maybe we reacted too quickly. Maybe we you know, jumped to anger too quickly, right? Then after a while, we realize, ah, I wasn't such a big deal anyway. Right? It's just peanuts, right? Okay. But God's anger is not like that, right? God didn't sort of say, ah, yeah, I thought it was sinful, but actually not so bad, lah. Not so bad, right? He was angry because, in a very real and objective way, mankind was sinning, and this sin was spreading across the whole creation. That it was, it was basically corrupting the whole creation. So I always remember my grandfather. My grandfather died last year, and he has this really strange habit, right? So my grandfather really loves coffee. So what he does is he 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 has this uh, cup of coffee and he just fills it with um, uh, lots of strong coffee and throughout the whole day what he does is he keeps pouring hot water onto these coffee beans right and and the the thing is is like the coffee is so strong that that that, that throughout the day the the cup of coffee just keeps tasting of coffee even though like he's pouring like multiple coffees of uh, cups of hot water in it. It's like whatever comes into contact with that coffee, beans, tastes like coffee. Right? And I think that's the picture that we saw last week, right? That the sin of man tainted everything that it touched. Right? From the sin of Adam and Eve, to the sin of Cain and Abel, to the sin of Lamech, to the spread of sin everywhere. It's like sin is like this, it's like the coffee beans, right? It's like it, when it, whatever it touches becomes tainted with sin. And the spread of sin just kept going on and on and on. So God here, when He's angry, deals with this sin in a very, very serious way. He wipes out all the living creatures because of the spread of sin. He does undoes the act of creation. But you notice something interesting, isn't it? Because as we read the uncreation of the world, we read of the person of Noah. Right, as he's uncreating the world through the flood, he's recreating the world through Noah. Do you, do you notice that? So here we read about how God tells Noah to collect seven pairs of every kind of clean animal and his unclean animal and brings him, brings them into the ark. So you might think, you know, wow, how come so much, uh, so many animals, right? Why not just get one pair, right? No, like so troublesome, seven, right? Uh, well. As we'll read later, he probably got seven animals because he got three pairs and one extra was to sacrifice for, for God or maybe to eat. Lah, okay? But you notice something that actually Noah, in all the account, obeyed God in every way, right? God says, build the ark. He built the ark. God says, collect the animals. He collect the animals. God says, get ready to go. He gets ready to go, right? So in every way, he really fulfills what we read in chapter 6, because in chapter 6, we read that Noah was 
A righteous man, in verse 9, right? Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. And here was Noah walking faithfully with God. He did everything that God told him to do. And here we see that just as God acts to destroy the world through the flood, he seeks to save the world through this faithful man, Noah. Because, as you see here in verse 11 to 16, right? All the animals of every kind come to Noah and enter into the ark. So, you know, I remember when I was young, I was thought, wow, very hard being Noah, right? You know, can you imagine, like, he has to build all these traps to trap the lions and you know, cap- capture the birds, uh, you know? Then don't know how to bring the lions in, you know, and the sheep. You know, he have some sequencing thing. You know, it's a bit like those uh, riddles. You know, okay, which animal do you bring first? So you bring this animal, so it doesn't eat the other one. Then you bring the other one, so it doesn't eat one. No, no. So then, uh, finally, you get the the pattern right, right? But actually, when you read uh, the passage, uh, actually Noah didn't do anything. He just sat in the ark, and then all the animals came, right? And actually, when you read this part, it again reminds you back of creation of the world, right? Because in Genesis chapter 2, God brought all the animals to Adam to name. Remember? In Genesis chapter 2, God brought all the animals before Adam to name. So here God does the same thing. He brings all the animals, but they're already named, into the ark. Adam, I'm sorry, Noah doesn't do anything. He just sits there and he waits for all the animals to come. He just lowers the door, opens the door, and then all the animals start coming in. So here we see God actually works to recreate the world through Noah at the same time as destroying the world by the flood. And we see that in chapter 8, right? In verse 1 and 2. As the world was flooded for 150 days and everything was dying, God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark. And he sent a wind over the earth and the waters receded. Now the springs of the deep and the floodgates of the heaven heavens had been closed and the rain had stopped falling from the sky. Now, it wasn't as if God forgot about Noah, right? It's not you know, like God was watching a lot of television and then he said, oh, well, I forgot to, you know, uh, do the washing. Well, sometimes my wife says that, you know, I forgot to put the laundry out, you know. Sometimes she asked me to... to, to do various things that like turn off the oven and I forget, right? So God's not, not, not like that, right? It's not like he's watching TV then, oh, hey, Noah, he's still there floating around, right? It's not as if he remembered Noah that way. But I think when he, the Bible talks about remembering, is the idea of where when God remembers something, he acts on behalf of that person. So when he remembers Noah, he actually acts on behalf of Noah. And what does he do? You see, when he remembers Noah, he sends a wind, and the wind dries up all the water. Right? He, he causes the, the, the springs from the deep to stop. He, he stops the rain. He, so as he remembers Noah, then he causes the water to recede by his intervention. Now, as we keep going, we see that Noah is very good, right? He, he keeps obeying God all the way to the very end. Up to the very end in verse 20 to 20, uh, to, sorry, to 15, right? Where he keeps waiting and waiting for God until finally in verse 15, God said to Noah, okay, now you can come out, right? 
come out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and their wives, bring out every kind of living creatures that are with you, the birds, the animals, and all the creatures that move along the ground, so they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number. So Noah came out together with his sons and his wife, and his son's wives, and all the creatures, and all the animals that move along the ground, and all the birds, everything that moves on land came out of the ark, one kind after another. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds and sacrificed the burnt offerings on it. And God smelled the aroma in his heart and said in his heart that he was very happy. Now as we read this, we see Noah is still obedient, he is still faithful, and on top of that, he worships God without God telling him. Right? He brings, he builds an altar, he burns an offering, and he thanks God for what happened. So as we come to this point, we think, okay, great, right? everything is really great, God uncreated the world with the flood, now he's recreating the world through this righteous man, Adam, uh, not Adam, sorry, Noah, right? the new Adam, right? And, uh, you know, Noah, he's so good, you know, he built the ark, he got the animals, he obeyed God, he didn't come out until God told him. When God told him, he finally came out, then what did he do? He worshipped God. But then, in verse 21, there's a hint that things are still not right, right? That sin has still not been defeated. Because look at what God says in verse 21. Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. Okay? It's like, here we, you know, like at at, at the very end of the chapter, we think, well, this is great, isn't it? Noah, he's such a great guy. He obeyed God. He did all this. Then all of a sudden, hey, how come? How come human beings still have every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood? Then what that means is that the, 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 the leftover humans, like Noah and all those people, they're still sinful in their heart. Because they were sinful to begin with, right from childbirth, they were sinful. Now what a shocker that is, isn't it? In many ways, it's a shock to us in modern society because in modern society, the unspoken rule is, uh, you know, when you're born, you're born innocent, right? Okay, so you know, you look at Ruel, you know, you think, ah, oh, he's innocent, sinless, whatever, right? But actually, what God says is that he was born in sin, right? Sin is already resident in his heart. Same with Noah, so same with his sons. So what we see is, even though God uncreated the world through the flood, and even though he seeks to recreate the world through Noah, sin is still there. Until he kills every single person, the problem of sin is not solved. And that shows the contrast in God's character, right? Because he's very angry. He's angry with sin, and yet he, in his grace, allows the remnant of humanity to live, even though in verse 21 he knows that sin will still be left in the world. Can you see the contrast there? God hates sin. Sin pained God. 
It made him feel very angry, but yet he had enough grace and mercy in his heart not to destroy mankind totally. But that meant that the problem of sin was still unresolved. Now, what can we learn from this story then? I think the first uh, thing that we learn is, uh, we keep going to the New Testament, okay? because I think the New Testament gives us a few uh, applications from Noah's story. So the first thing is in Luke 17, right? Oh, uh, yeah, okay. The first thing is um, the faith of Noah. Okay, Noah obeyed God because he was faithful. Right? Now we'll come back to this later, but it sort of shows that God saw in Noah, not just because he was righteous, you know, not because you know he's such a great guy, but also he had faith in God. He trusted God. He had a relationship with God. And we'll see what that means for us later on. But let's look at Luke chapter 17. All right. Now the first mistake that we can make of reading the book of uh, Genesis chapter 7 and 8 is to not understand the implications of the flood. Luke chapter 17 says, Just in the days of Noah, so also will be in the days of the Son of Man. People will be eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. So the first lesson we learn is that people do not take judgment seriously. Just as in the days of Noah, people did not take judgment seriously, so people today do not take judgment seriously. You know, uh, I was talking to this guy recently, and we were, interestingly enough, talking about the flood. And we were saying, oh, no, the flood is not real, you know, how can this be real, and everything else, and no, no. But actually, as I was talking to him, I realized that the reason why he was against the flood was because if the flood is real, then God's judgment is real. And if God's judgment is real, it meant that my friend had to deal with judgment and deal with his sin and turn to Jesus. You see, that's why people, in a sense, reject the flood. Because if the flood is real, that means God actually has once in the past judged the world because of sin. And what he's done before, he will do again. He will again judge the world because of sin. And so if I believe in the flood, then I must believe that I am sinful, I will face judgment because of sin, and I need to, to turn to Jesus. Now as much as um, when we read the book of uh, Genesis 7 and 8, we think, well, is this flood maybe a localized flood? Maybe, maybe it just flooded in the, in the ancient Middle East. The problem is when you look at chapter 7, um, the language that is used there is really universal. Right, you know, it's very hard to say, you know, archaeologically, was there such a flood in the past? You know, what happened? But, but when you read the language in verse 17 to verse 23, you can't get around the fact that it has a universal flood in mind. Right? When it talks about how, um, it covered all the high mountains under the higher heavens were covered. Uh, when it talks about how everything on dry land that had breath of life in its nostrils died. right? When it talks about how um, 
uh, all the mountains were covered. You know, it's like the language is used is very universal. And the point that's being made here is that judgment came upon the whole earth. And this picture of judgment is actually a picture and a forewarning of the judgment to come. So in 2 Peter, look at this. Okay, In 2 Peter, <clears throat> it says that when God right, brought the flood on ungodly people and protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness and seven others, it's actually looking forward to how God will rescue godly men from trials and hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment while continuing their punishment. So the flood is a bit like um, the National Day Parade, you see. Because you know the National Day Parade, when I watch it on TV, right, do you, do you think they just get it right the first time? No, they don't, right? They practice. And the flood is like a practice, a practice run of God's judgment. Right? You know, he wipes out the whole earth. But the flood is not the final judgment. The flood is just a practice judgment. The real judgment to come is still in the future when Jesus comes. See, turn with me again to Genesis chapter 8 verse 21. Right? Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. Now, the as I have done here is very significant, right? Because what it's saying is he will never destroy them through a flood again. But that doesn't mean that he won't destroy them by fire. Right? Because that's what the Bible says. Now, the good news is, I find this uh, flood story very encouraging because it tells me that God will actually judge evil. So, you know, when I read of people who murder, or I think of Hitler, or I think of drug traffickers, or people who uh, do very bad things, I think, yes, Amen to God's judgment. Amen that these people will be judged by God one day. But the bad news is, as I also read verse 21 of chapter 8, I realize, hey, hey God's going to judge me too, right? Because I was born in sin. You were born in sin. All of us were born in sin. And therefore, God's going to judge us. Even Noah would be judged by God. Because he's not perfect. He is born into sin too. In fact, if you think of Noah, right, he is like the, the, the gold medal winner of righteousness, right, in his generation. That's what Jesus, God said, right, he is the, he was the most righteous person in his generation. He was like the Lionel Messi or the Roger Federer of righteousness. But even he was born in sin. So therefore, the answer to be right with God is not to be like Noah, because even Noah was judged. But in fact, what does 1 Peter say? 1 Peter tells us that actually the flood and, and, and Noah's uh, example actually shows us that the way to be saved is to actually have a good conscience before God. And this happens by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels and authorities and powers in submission to him. So where is the ark? The ark is not a physical thing that we build today. Right? I mean, we're not going to build the ark because when the fire comes, the ark doesn't protect you. Right? <laughs> okay, uh, ark only helps you in the flood. Right? Okay. 
But what saves us is Jesus Christ. That is where we find safety. That is what the ark and the flood and Noah were pointing to. See, so we talked about the faith of uh, Noah, right? So the faith of Noah is a bit small, this writing, but, but you're quite young, so you should be able to see it. See, by faith Noah, when he was warned about the things which was going to come, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By his faith he condemned the world and became the heir of righteousness by faith. All these people, including Noah, were commended for their faith, but they didn't receive what had been promised. God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, including Noah, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. See, the faith of Noah was looking forward to Jesus, the final perfecter of his faith. Noah was saved, not because of righteousness, but because he put his faith in God, that God in the future would send someone to save him from his sins, like, like Jesus. Noah is watching us today from heaven. Right? Noah is watching each of us. And as he watches us, we are to follow his examples, it's his example and have faith in Jesus who perfects us and saves us from our sin. See, at the end of the day, what is the story of the flood about? The story of the flood is about how God deals with sin and how sin will be punished and how, at the end of the day, when we want to run away from sin, we can run as far and as fast as we want, but we cannot escape God's judgment. It is only when we learn the lesson of Noah to put our faith in God and put our faith ultimately in Jesus Christ that we can be saved from God's anger against sin. See, God's anger with sin will never go away. It is part of His character. He has to deal with sin. He has to punish sin. But if we find ourselves in Jesus, then we'll be saved from sin.